This is the Education Gadfly Show. Yeah, why conduct research when you can have hypotheses? Yeah, exactly. It's more fun. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome my special guest for this week, Tom Talk. Tom, welcome back to the show. Hi, happy to be here again. Also joining us as always, my co-host, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. Always a pleasure. For folks who forget, Tom is the director of Future Ed, which is a great think tank that's been doing work, probably coming up on like a fifth anniversary sometime soon. Is that right? Next month, it'll be five years that we launched our website. Boom. I just pulled that right out of my head. I, boy, I feel, I feel good. You nailed it. I've got this internal calendar that pays attention to <laughs> education policy think tanks. All right. So I got to ask you both because I've been wrestling with this. Olympics, yay or nay for you? Are you on team boycott or are you on team sit on the couch and watch the Americans compete? I'm on team boycott by default, Mike. <laughs> oh, you're on team boycott. Oh, oh, because you're like asleep by that point and uh, having a young child. Yes, I'm either I'm either I'm either working or parenting or I don't know grocery shopping. I'm aware that they're Olympics. Okay, and then you can now claim that you're doing it to protest the terrible treatment of the Uyghurs in China. I don't want to joke about it, honestly. Yeah, no, I hear you. Tom, Tom, are you watching? I watch a little bit of it. I can't stand the ads, the volume of ads. And, and I so know. I DVD it and watch a bit of it when I can. The thing that strikes me is that NBC News has turned its regular nightly national newscast into a promo for the Olympics. Half their correspondents are over there. Half the news, quote unquote, is about downhill and, and snowboarding. Yeah. And it is not something to joke about, David. You're right. I mean, I really do. I've really wrestled with this because I love the Olympics and I hate China, <laughs> especially what it's doing uh, to the Uyghurs. So I have wrestled with this, but I will say in the end, we have been watching it. It's just such a great thing to do with our boys. You know, it's just a fun family activity and the drama, but you're right, Tom. Is it just that we're not used to watching ads anymore? Or I swear it is like, over 50% of the time on the air is ads at this point. And, and many of them are pretty good, like the first or second time you see them. But goodness yeah, gracious. Yeah, it's brutal. I mean, we get it. It's funny. The guy has a cat instead of a dog doing dog-like things and blah, blah, blah. But and the, the 20th time you've seen that commercial, David, I want to shoot myself. It's All a right. warm-up for the Super Bowl. Yes, this is true, which is exciting, which is coming. But look, we're not here to talk about uh, sports or geopolitics. We're here to talk about education. So let's do so on Ed Reform Update. All right, Tom, well, you and your team continue to do great work on many fronts, but one of those fronts is to track how school districts are spending their federal relief dollars. You've got a big new analysis out. Understand you tapped into some Burbio data or maybe worked with Burbio to scan school district plans in thousands of districts, it looked like. So tell us what you found. Where is this money going? Yeah, we looked at uh, about 2,700 school districts educating about 56% of the public school students in the country, Mike, and they represent about $64 billion of the $122 billion in the uh, third tranche of, of federal COVID relief. Uh, we found uh, a bunch of things. And uh, a lot of it is interesting. So the top three priorities nationally are teacher-related, 
uh, summer learning programs, and somewhat interestingly, HVAC and, and other repair systems. And we also then looked at the data from in different ways. We looked at a regional analysis. We looked at, at the differences in spending priorities among urban, suburban, rural, and towns. And we also have just looked at districts through the lens of the percentage of their students uh, in poverty. And we found that uh, the poorest districts that is, those with the largest number of students eligible for Title I monies are getting a lot more money. The lowest 10% in um, wealth are uh, getting 5500 bucks. The wealthiest districts are getting uh, a tenth of that, about 500 So um, th- that alone is, is significant in its implications for sort of targeting resources. And as you know, this is an unprecedented amount of money. So Rural districts are spending a lot less on after school, maybe because transportation is a challenge for them, spending a lot less on mental health supports and staff, uh, maybe because those professionals, we've been told, are, are much harder to find than they are in urban and suburban districts. There's a lot more emphasis in districts on mental health on the coasts, and that is the West Coast and the Northeast, where you'd think there'd be a lot more psychologists and others around. But the rurals are spending a lot more money, and those with uh, more impoverished kids are spending a lot more money on instructional materials, uh, 54% of the, of the uh, poorest districts versus 26% of the 10% wealthiest districts. And they're spending a lot more on HVAC and, and repairs, which suggests that uh, they are addressing long-neglected uh, infrastructure needs. And they're spending also a lot more money on curriculum materials, on the assumption that they've got outdated textbooks and and the like. What we're not seeing is a lot of money spent on turf fields and new weight rooms. Uh, There have been some headlines about that. We haven't seen very many districts suggest that they plan to spend money on that. Now, you know, this analysis is of plans. These plans can change between now and the end of 2024 uh, fiscal year. But We do think it's important to understand what the spending priorities are. Budgets can drive policy to a large extent. And so we think that this analysis is helpful to see the directions in which different types of districts are headed uh, in spending the money. So, you know, when you tick through this list, I have to say it sounds mostly reasonable, right? (laughs) I mean, you know, I think a lot of us, perhaps because we've become too cynical, expected that, oh, the districts are going to waste a lot of this money. Uh, it sounds like some of these things are, are pretty good. I mean, I certainly am happy to hear that high poverty districts are spending money on instructional materials. That's great. The HVAC thing, is this to improve ventilation? Is that what a lot of this is about? Right. Well, the federal government has allowed districts to spend ESSER money, the COVID relief money, on a wide range of things as long as it's designed to help get kids back to school safely. Uh, asthma is the single largest cause of student absenteeism. And, and so to the extent that districts have antiquated, unsafe ventilation systems, you're going to get less learning. Yeah, no, it is. that all makes sense. And, you know, it's one of these questions I've had is how much of the money is going towards just keeping kids in school this year, right? Versus some things that are more about recovering from the pandemic, learning loss, it does seem like the ventilation stuff is is a long term investment that could continue to pay off, right? I mean, we've 
all kind of had our eyes awakened to how important indoor ventilation is. There's been some interesting studies about that, uh, linking that to student achievement. And like you say, yeah, I mean, asthma and other issues, this seems like an investment worth making. Let me drill in though on the first item you mentioned, Tom, which sounded like a very broad item, which is around teacher stuff in general. You know, is this everything from what one-time bonuses, salary increases? I mean, this is where I'm wondering if actually we're seeing some money wasted or some money that's sure we love teachers, give them some extra money, but is that really a good use of of resources when, for example, it could go to tutoring instead, when it could go to yeah. extras for kids? What, what's your take on that bucket? Yeah, it looks like they are spending money in a variety of ways. Everything from hiring staff that they intend to keep, from classroom teachers to counselors and outreach specialists to to go find kids who've been lost in some instances, literally, during the pandemic. And there's a lot of bonuses, retention bonuses, and thank you bonuses, too. Obviously, with a funding cliff, hiring a lot of new teachers who you can't pay for beyond two years is a risky strategy. On the other hand, you know, hiring counselors on a short-term basis to reintroduce kids to schooling and the challenges that we've been reading about that many kids have had, you know, is, is not a bad investment on, on the assumption that these would be short-term hires. Paying teachers bonuses for just, you know, enduring what everybody else is enduring is A, an incredibly expensive proposition when you consider the number of teachers in the country. And, you know, I'm with you. I'm not sure it's the best use of the money. We found that on average, the school districts are spending $400 per pupil nationally on teachers staffing in that category. So it's a complicated one. And I think that as you imply, my districts would be smart to be very strategic on this one. Yeah. What do you think, David? Yeah, I, I have a similar question. Can we dig into summer school a little bit? I'm not quite sure what it means, right? Because we already sort of do summer school. So are we just doing it better? Or what does it mean? Yeah, it seems like districts are doing more of it, meaning that they are serving more kids in, during the summer and also in some instances extending the number of weeks of their summer school programs. Now, again, they're doing this in part because it, there's research to suggest it's a good idea if it's done well which is the key. But we don't know if it's being done very well in many places. So, you know, this raises another point, which is who's holding districts accountable for the spending of this immense amount of monies? And, and, you know, many state departments of education lack the capacity to do that well. Certainly the federal government can't uh, oversee 13,300 school districts. So, it seems to me that one strategy is to start doing some auditing of some percentage of the district spending as a way of holding the system accountable. So, uh, so Tom, what do you think? Are you optimistic that this money is actually going to lead to you know, good results in terms of catching kids up? Anything that you think we can say about the national picture? Or is this going to play out differently in different places? We'll see some, you know, some districts do better than others like we always do. Yeah, I think it's the latter. I mean, it's that's the you know the challenge of our decentralized system, right? You've got tens of thousands of people making policy decisions, and then tens of thousands of people implementing policies in different contexts all over the country. It, it makes it really hard to to uh, get uniform implementation on the one hand, and certainly you know comparable high standards everywhere. So it's going to be a mixed picture. 
one can be hopeful. On the other hand, we weren't exactly knocking it out of the park academically uh, before the pandemic. I don't need to tell you guys that, given everything you've written about it. Uh, so, you know, uh, it's needed. The money, I think, can be put to good use. Let's hope it is. All right. Well, uh, as this continues to unfold, I hope you might consider coming back. Let us know how it's going. And, and it will be interesting. I, I have this little uh, hypothesis that you could use the Burbio data to compare the, the districts that were closed the longest last year. You know, they took the longest to come back to in-person spending. I bet uh, very strongly correlated with the districts that are giving their teachers one-time bonuses instead of spending the money on stuff that's more directly targeted to kids, right? And that might tell us something about who's, who's got the real power in those districts. So th- there's an idea for you, David, for our uh, next research study. Yeah, why conduct research when you can have hypotheses, Mike? Yeah, exactly. It's more fun if you start with the outcomes. All right. Hey, Tom, thanks so much for coming on the show. Again, Tom Talk Director at Future Ed. Great. Thanks, guys. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Mike. So, have you been watching the Olympics? Of course, I have been watching the Olympics. Wow, Nathan Chang, uh, did, did you see him last night? I mean, uh, you know, I, I didn't. I I went to sleep before his long program, but I will catch yes. it uh, again. Yes, yes. Check, Nate- check it out. Wow, it was just amazing. You know, Elton John song, and he just he had all his moves coordinated with the crescendo of the music. It was just amazing. Oh, that's great. No, that's good. He, uh, that's very exciting. I know Nathan Chen and we, I did, I did get to see, uh, Chloe Kim. Is that, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, she was awesome. On the big, the big air, right? Yeah. Oh, no, this was on the uh, half pipe on the the half pipe. Okay. I was watching the big air the other night, which was just, Ah, just insane. It is insane. And the crashes and that they're, they're they're fine. I know. Yeah, they just fit right up, right? I'm like, (laughs) you just felt like 200 feet or something and you're just fine. (laughs) Of course, I now view this all through the lens of a parent. I'm like, who is letting their kid do that? That's (laughs) crazy. But uh, we, we are, we have special uh, positive feelings for the older Olympians that are doing well. Yes, uh, like, we do. Uh, what's her name? Lindsay, who came back, who the one who had, uh, who fell to back in 20, 2006 oh, I forgot. in My, the snowboard cross. She was yeah. you know, kind of hamming it up at the end and she fell and she lost the gold medal. She right. finally, 16 years later, yeah, gets it got back. It. Oh so. man, I know it's 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 just been in the Russian skater who did some quadruple sow cow yeah. whatever they call it with her hands above her head. Yeah. Oh, my, oh wow. So yeah, they they just they're they're bringing their A game. All of these athletes, obviously, that's what you do in the Olympics. So it's a joy mm. to watch. Well, that is a positive perspective. We Tom, Tom and I were just complaining about all the commercials, but it's much better to, <laughs> to talk about the awesome athletes. All right, hey, yeah. what do you have for us this week? All right, we have a new study that examines how much teachers value different elements of a teaching job including additional staff, additional salary, smaller class sizes, childcare subsidies, and so on, and how cost-effective their preferences are. Mm -hmm. The paper seeks to determine how much inadequate compensation is a primary issue and challenges to the teacher workforce through a series of survey experiments. Love these kind of survey experiments. Uh, Analysts utilize a survey sample of over 1,000 U.S. K-12 teachers representative of the national teacher workforce in terms of grade level, gender, and race. 
They present teachers with randomly assigned pairs of hypothetical school profiles where the school features were also randomly assigned and consisted of mutually exclusive or distinct choices. Teachers were asked to hold constant in their minds all unstated features of the schools in each profile so that the main question read, and I quote, if two schools were otherwise identical in every other way, same building, same principal, same teaching assignment, same students, which school would you prefer? Each of the two schools then addressed the same seven features, salary, child care benefits, class size, and then four separate support roles, school counselors, nurses, special education specialists, and instructional coaches. Then analysts examined the probability that a teacher would want to work at a school with a particular benefit relative to a school without it, typically comparing benefits in terms of a 10 to 20% salary increase or decrease. Then they estimated teachers' willingness to pay for each specific benefit, basing their estimates on an average teacher salary of $60,000 and an average of 33 teachers per school. Obviously, this uh, is it's key whether we believe that teachers make um, the same choices in an online experiment that they make in the real world. That's debatable, but the authors do make a point to say that prior research reveals a strong link between stated and revealed preferences. Now, the results. The average teacher is willing to trade off a 13% increase in salary, which is about $7,800, to work at a school with a school nurse which is more than five times the per-teacher cost of employing a full-time nurse. Similarly, the average teacher is willing to trade off a 12.5% increase in salary, that's around $7,500, to work at a school with one full-time counselor, which is more than four times the per-teacher cost of employing a school counselor. Second, of all the policy options examined, investments in full-time, in-class, special education supports were most appealing to teachers but least cost-effective. The average teacher will be willing to trade off 16.6% increase in salary, uh, $12,000, about $12,600, for full-time support in her classroom from a special education co-teacher and a 12.5% increase in salary, around $10,600, for full-time support from a special education paraprofessional However, the benefits accrued to teachers fail to offset the cost of hiring these individuals because they obviously aren't serving the whole school like a nurse or counselor is doing. Teachers showed the lowest willingness to pay for smaller class sizes, where they valued a three-student reduction on par with a 3.2% increase in pay, or around $1,900. Instructional coaches, I'm getting to the end here, were much less preferred to counselors, nurses, and special education specialists, which I thought was a little strange, but it was presented as one hour of one-on-one coaching a month, but they also say that's what most schools offer. So there you have it. Uh, Finally, they find that the average teacher with children under 12 would be willing to trade off a 10% increase in salary for a child care benefit of similar value, suggesting that salary and child care are good substitutes for one another plus providing childcare benefits is far less expensive than increasing salary because obviously you've got fewer teachers participating and the kids are going to age out at some point. Uh, they also observed that teachers ineligible for childcare also benefited and, and expressed preferences for working at this hypothetical school that offered it because presumably they take that as a signal 
of a, um, you know, workplace quality, or maybe they are aspiring parents themselves and they're eyeing future benefits. But the bottom line, I think, was that we have multiple levers to ensure teacher satisfaction and help with recruitment and retention besides just teacher pay. Mm-hmm. I like it. And it goes very much with our conversation we just had. Why is it that we're just giving money to teachers with this federal stimulus, these one-time checks or the salary increases that uh, <laughs> it may not even be what's most valued by teachers. I mean, this reminds me also of Marguerite Rose's great, you know, would you rather game right. where, uh-huh. where she tries to right, get people to, to, to make these kinds of decisions and put a price tag on, uh, on how much stuff actually costs and trade it off against, like you say, uh, you know, increases in salary or decreases in class size, or, you know, just give the money to the parents to be able to do something extra for their kids. Uh, This is a good way to think about things. David? Amber, I may have missed it. Did they break it down by teachers in high poverty schools versus other teachers? No, they just said in your mind, it's the same school, same students, same location, same building. Okay. But (laughs) presumably the teachers who are answering these questions were not in the same location, right? Sure. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I just have to be honest here, right? I, I feel like the answers that teachers would give to some of these questions would be informed by what's happening in their classrooms at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have taken about a 50% pay cut for full-time classroom assistance, but that's probably not true of teachers everywhere. I'm struggling a bit with what to do with it, right? I mean, it is, I, I will say this. I think it is intuitive to me that salary, certainly beyond a certain point, is not what motivates teachers. And I'm, I'm not sure it's what motivates anyone beyond a certain point. And I feel, and I'm not sure what the solution is, but I feel pretty strongly that uh, a lot of our teacher quality problems boil down to working conditions and student behavior and whether or not any, any sane person would, would do this for 25 years. And so it's intuitive to me that things that touch on that should matter a lot to teachers. What I'm struggling with a bit is, right, is the conclusion that, for example, like a, a sped paraprofessional doesn't pencil out. Maybe it doesn't, right? But I also just, I wonder whether there's any way to make progress. Yeah, I think that's right. And I mean, and, and we've heard again and again, you know, that this workplace conditions hugely matter to teachers, school culture, these things that are so hard to measure. But I did think it was interesting. I mean, again, they they did the class size question in terms of three kids. We hear so much about preferences for smaller class size, and that didn't particularly pop. It is impressive to me that the nurses and the counselors came in so high. That maybe makes teachers' lives a little bit easier, but I don't think that that's not really what it's about, right? They they feel like their kids need those supports. Yeah, and, and it can, I think it can help a little bit with the stress level of teachers. You know, if you don't have a school nurse and you've got three kids or are sick and you don't have it, you can't send them to the school nurse. <laughs> like, you know, you're frustrated that uh, that your school doesn't have a school nurse. Like, you know, you, you have one two days a week and it's Wednesday and she's only in on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Yeah, it's uh, it can be stressful for a teacher to have to deal with that. The parent can't come and pick them up. So you're like, sit in the corner, you know here's a wet cloth on your head. I mean, I've been in that position before. So 
uh, anyway, it, it matters. <laughs> you, you, you had a kid sit in your class with a wet cloth on their head? Is that? <laughs> I mean, the, the, the nurse was not in. I'm like, and the parents were going to come get him. I'm like, come on. <laughs> All right. Yeah, you do what you got to do. All right. Yeah. All right. Good. All right. Well, interesting stuff. We won't call this the most rigorous study that we've ever covered here on, on the Education Gadfly Show, but still, yes, pseudo experiments, but, but still. We've done stuff like this before too, where we do these, you know, where we offer people trade-offs, yes. right? We've done that and, and it's useful it information. Is. It is. Thank you, Amber. That is all the time though that we've got for this week. And so until next week. I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.